glad you guys are here today. My name's Steve. I'm one of the elders here. You wouldn't know it because I'm hardly ever here. We just got back from a massive vacation that we took. We have a friend who is a, a particle physicist, and he is spending the year at CERN. So because they're in Geneva, they're like, you guys have got to come over and visit us. And we were like, that is a good offer. So... So we went through Paris and then took a train to Geneva and we gallivanted around uh, the French and Swiss Alps. And um, this is a thing about me is I'm a very spontaneous guy, but when it comes down to business, I try to execute like a mother. So I plan out to the extent that I studied, you know, every aspect of our vacation. And you can ask my wife, there was actually a PDF that had themes of each day in addition to all modes and methods of transportation that we were going to take during the course of our trip. And even though we had a few mishaps here and there because my knowledge of French is non-existent, except I can now order food. Like, this is the thing that we said we weren't going to admit, but it got so desperate at the end of the vacation. We, there was a Chipotle there, and we were just like, look, we're just going to Chipotle. Like, there's only so many times that you can have a snooty French waiter talk down to you that you're like, I know at Chipotle they will honor me. <laughs> and the height of my trip might have been the idea that I was able to, like, order an entire burrito in French. <laughs> and it was edible. It was amazing stuff. But here's the thing, is that, I, I, seriously, I had been researching and looking into this to make sure, because if you're going to go to Europe, you're going to spend a lot of money to do it, you want to make sure that every moment is accounted for, and I so deeply invested myself into that opportunity, that now I'm at this letdown to where it's over, and now you're like, what's next? I had the same thing, and some of you are runners out there, when you're training for a race, and you get to that race, at the, you know, after it arrives, it's over, and you're like, now what do you do? It's just this amazing letdown, and you just wrestle with, okay, how do I find existence today? Well, we are studying, as a church, a short uh, series in the book of Jonah, and we're talking about, in the book of Jonah, an Old Testament book of prophecy, and so what we do at Echo, we just... We, we study the word of God, and Jonah's a small book. Jonah lived before Jesus was born, and even if you're not a churchy person, you're probably familiar with Jonah, because Jonah was the man who got stuck in the belly of a huge fish. And it's this story that many people, even who have no concept of Christianity or Judaism, they understand that story. And last week, uh, Larry, and I've lost the Larry's. Larry in the back with the kids? And I hope you enjoyed Larry last week, and I don't know if Larry even shared, I didn't even ask him this morning, we were talking about this, but Larry had a close colleague um, that he worked with that was killed, and then he, you know, he still came up and delivered the word, and um, he, he's just that kind of man. Uh, I love that guy. But here's the funny thing about just this, the book comes through, is that Larry had the apex of the story of Jonah, right? Where he ends up in the belly of the fish, and he goes through his thing, and you know, then you're like, okay, at the end of this, then it's all downhill, right? It's like we reach that point, that moment. How can anything after that arise to the same thing? What do you do when this letdown happens in the book? And this is what we are going to look at today because I'm going to tell you is that some of the best part of the story of Jonah that you might never have even read takes place after the dude comes out of the fish. So we are in Jonah chapter 3 today. And in your blue Bible in the pew, it's page 655, or if you have a digital um, Bible that you look at, feel free to pull that out right now. And we are going to go through chapter 3 today, 
Andrew has been kind enough, oh, before you get started, this is the one thing, I didn't map this out right here, is just to look at, you know, the path of Jonah, and of the three chapters, we start off with Jonah's disgust, he's just like, I'm not going to go to talk to the people of Nineveh, who are the worst people who ever lived, by chapter two, he was digested, that was the best I could do, by the way, I came up with this, like, you know, in the middle of a, you know, a very long flight, so I thought this was, like, awesome then it might not be now the third thing though and that's what we're going to go over today is that Jonah delivers the message so Andrew now without further ado will you go ahead and read out loud for us verses one through three of Jonah chapter three please then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh now Nineveh was a very large city it took three days to go through it This is the thing about Jonah that we should find encouraging is that God in chapter 1 tells Jonah, go and talk to these very evil people. I need to let them know of my message of smiting if they do not change their ways. And Jonah does not go there. He goes the opposite way. Instead of going over land, he takes a boat. That's how he ends up in a fish belly. Throughout this whole process, Jonah has not followed God until he was just like being in the belly of a fish is bad. So I will follow him now. Jonah gets a second chance. And this is one thing that we don't necessarily associate with God sometimes, but understand this for a prophet is prophets, because they had direct line to God, often did not get the second chance. And actually, there's a great story in 1 Kings chapter 13, and this is one of the reasons why people don't like to look in the Old Testament, because it seems messed up, but God gives a prophet a certain message to give, the prophet coerces the message into something that God did not want it to say, and God says, okay, my prophet, if that's how you're going to react, as he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him, and his body was left lying by the road. So if you were given a message from God, and you said, nope, I'm I'm okay with not doing that, sometimes God reacted by having a lion ravage your body and letting it wait by the road. But this is what's interesting for Jonah. Jonah gets the second chance. And this is the thing, though, and even though the lion thing might be without context, and you might not, you're still trying to wrap yourself or like, why is God just smiting prophets by lion? But this is something that is true throughout the whole scriptures, is our God is the God of second chances. How many times have you and I messed up? Have we done things that were, were boneheaded when we have turned our back on God, and yet God has given us another opportunity to make it right? That's who our God is, friends. Our God is the God of second chances, and we need to embrace that. Okay, so here in verse 2, where he says, go to the great city of Nineveh, which is the same message that he gave him in chapter 1. But the one thing that we have here, if you're reading in the NIV, there, there's the original language of Hebrew in which this is written. And the, the translation there is probably best by some older transra- translations, which is, arise and go. So basically, wipe the fish vomit guts off your body and get your A dollar sign dollar sign on the road to go get this message done. This is what the Lord has Jonah to do. And this is important, I think, because there's an urgency to the message. 
So it's funny that, you know, Jonah deviated on this. He cost valuable time, and God says, okay, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to give you a second chance, but you need to act now. You need to move. And I think that's something that we need to take to heart as well, too, in what God calls us to do, because there's generally a complacency we have about getting things done. Is there or is there not? Most of us like deadlines because deadlines lets us know to the extent that we can procrastinate without actually having to do the work. So since we push things off, there sometimes is a lack of urgency until the deadline. And what God is saying right here is that when I give you a second chance, go. And understand this, basically, is that Jonah could have been lion fodder or, or, or fish digested fodder, however you want to say. But God gives him the second chance, and he gives him the second chance. He is saved so he can go save others. And usually when it comes to churchy things, we think that there are holy people who are called to do certain things. But friends, let me say this to you because the reason that you're probably here today is you're developing a relationship with your God. You want to see how that goes and you're pursuing it and you're focused on yourself. But recognize is that that message is never about yourself in isolation. Do you see this? You are saved so that others might be saved as well. And that frightens us because then we're like, okay, then what role do I need to, to, to play within that? Does it have to be an active role? But recognize this, is that our individual salvation is never individual. It's always based upon other people. Who are you loving? Who are you pouring into right now? Who needs the grace of God that you have that you can help spread that to? And again, this doesn't then mean that you have to walk into work tomorrow or to your colleagues, throw out some tracks and say, I'm going to have church service here by the water cooler right now. We'll rip the sucker out. I'll dunk you good because you need Jesus. But there ought to be some sort of sense of urgency, right? There ought to be a reaction by which you and I understand is that we've been saved so that others might be saved. Here's the tougher thing about this when we look at the text right here. This message that Jonah is supposed to give the people is not a message of encouragement, is it? It's not like, hey, Ninevites, you're doing really well being the most brutal people on the face of the earth. You're a Syrian empire thing where you impale people on poles. That's a great thing. You know, like you do it so well, but maybe you could get some God in your life. No, it is a, it is a harsh message. It's going to be a message of judgment. It is not going to be a message of encouragement to them. And that's a tough, difficult thing for you and I to be able to grapple with. And understand this about Jonah then having to give this message is that the one thing we don't see in the transition, remember what Larry talked about at the end of last week? Jonah's like, okay, I'll go. But it's not like Jonah's like, I'll go. This will be great. You know, that's why I ran away in the first place. No, Jonah is still not at peace with the message and the job that he's been given. Do you see that? I think that's in there. I think that's understood. Even though Jonah is going, I don't think he's going with a positive attitude. He's not at peace. Friends, this is something that's very important, I think, for you and I to realize. Because, again, I'm an ordained minister. I've been around churchy, church people for the longest time. And there's a phrase that comes up a lot of time when we talk about how you and I approach God. (coughs) And we say, "Am, am I, you know, I'm just not at peace with what God is doing here, right? Like, I think you know, I'm searching for just God to let me be at peace with something. But friends, is that really the call that God has for you in your life? Now, this is tough stuff, so let's just open this can, take it to a couple swigs and see how it tastes, okay? Because many of us are searching for those places in life where we're just at peace, right? 
where everything is right. Because we believe that when all is right, then maybe God is good with me, and then I have this internal relief. Maybe that's what you're longing for right now, right? Maybe it's something that you have uh, you know, in your job, in your education, in your family. You're not at peace, and you're like, if I can just find that point, then I'll know that God is with me. Friends, I think what Jonah shows here in his life is something that we need to come to grips with. God doesn't necessarily care about your peace now. Or, or maybe this is a better way to restate this. Peace in the way that you want it to be, right? We want peace on our terms, not on God's terms. There is peace, but it's his peace. And maybe you're fighting him right now because you're fighting him to establish a peace that you want in your life that is not what he's calling you for right here. Jonah's not at peace. Does that mean that his message and mission is wrong? No, because God has given it to him. There's many times in my life when I don't find the peace that I'm searching for, but instead of me trying to pursue that harder, maybe I need to stop and say, maybe this isn't what God wants me to go through right now. Sometimes the best lessons I've ever learned in my life have risen out of times of adversity. Those things that I wanted God to remove from my life, he was using to make me understand our relationship better. Maybe that's what God's doing right now. If you don't find that peace, don't think it's because that God is withholding it from you. Maybe what he's doing is he's trying to mold it into something greater for your life. Can I tell you one last thing about this? This is interesting uh, in verse 3. Jonah goes to Nineveh, this great city, and he gives this message for three days. Am I right there? Yeah. He's told to give this message for three days. The city of Nineveh, and again, I'm sorry I didn't get this background before. If you've been with us, it's probably been helpful, but if you haven't, the, the city of Nineveh was one of the major cities in Assyria. The Assyrian Empire was a historical empire um, ruled in the 8th century. They were one of the most violent armies to ever existed. They were the first major empire to be able to take over swatches of the world. So you go from Assyria to Babylon to Alexander the Great's Greek Empire to the Romans. Like that trail just goes pretty good. They were the first one to establish it and they established it through brutality. So we get this three-day thing and some people have said, okay, maybe it's because even, even at the size of the city, Nineveh was a great city, probably, you know, a few hundred thousand people. And in that time, you know, even with the density, it would have taken three days to be able to meander through the streets to be able to give the message. But I think what we see here is a parallel. And the parallel was Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. There was this experience that he had to undergo, that God pruned his heart, that he was able to help him see things differently, that he needed to follow the message. And I think it's the same type of thing, is that as you went into the belly of the fish for three days, you're going to go into the stomach of Nineveh. And again, this is the funny thing when we talk about that peace aspect, right? He probably still would have been like, man, fish belly was better than this. But sometimes God puts us through that, right? And sometimes he puts it through for the benefit of others. Andrew, let's keep reading verse 4. There's a short and sweet one for us. Read that out loud for us. Chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Basically, it's a very simple message, just eight words, right? Like, this is going to happen. And I'm supposed to read, repeat that over and over and over. I like to talk a lot. It's my thing. It's been my thing professionally. And sometimes I think that filling the silence with many words is more effective than sometimes just having a short, 
succinct message that is easy to understand. I have a marketing background too, and that's one of the things that they tried to say. You should want to keep it short and sweet because people don't have long attention spans. And anytime I see a billboard with more than 16, 20 words, it just really grates on me because people are like, no, we just need to put our entire message up there. No, sometimes it's about the simplicity of the message, and that is basically what God said. Hey, don't mix this up any more complicated than it needs to be. If you don't change your ways, it's going to end. And that's sometimes how the message needs to be delivered. In Jeremiah chapter 15, he is told the prophet to preach what's worthy, not worthless. And sometimes we fill the space with superfluous noise because we can. And sometimes what God is asking us is just incredibly simple. Sometimes we make faith way too complex. God just is saying, just do what I ask. Just do what I ask. And eventually it will all work out. So Jonah's message is one of ultimate simplicity, right? Just eight simple words, just just say this message and think about it. He's told to do this for three days. There's a power, and one of the things if you study other religions is that other religions uh, have mantras or chanting and repetitiveness. And sometimes we think that's a value that is, uh, you know, just limited to these other religions. But I think there's also a value sometimes, uh, even scripturally here, what we see in the repetitiveness of what we see, say, and think. And the message was so simple that Jonah needed to deliver just change you have 40 days now it's interesting if you know anything about the bible too that 40 days aspect is this number that keeps coming up over and over again in the scriptures the number seven has some power to it but what's interesting is 40 has power to it because we see it all over the place i don't know your familiarity with the scriptures but the for the great flood in the time of noah it rained for 40 days and 40 nights Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days as he waited for God to give the commandments. For 40 years now, there's that 40 number. The Israelites were in the wilderness. And this is something that Matthew shows that sort of to show the parallel, whereas the Israelites were 40, day, 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness where he, he fasted. And then after Jesus dies and is resurrected, he remains on the earth for an additional 40 days. This number comes up over and over and over again. Now, it's interesting specifically when it comes to the day thing because there's different aspects of how people talk that habits are developed and formed. And sometimes people say that 40 is one of those magical numbers that if you can persist at something for 40 days, it stops being a one-time thing and it becomes hardwired into your mind. One thing that we see in Scripture is that what this 40 does at the end of it results in times of or it, it is, it, what do I want to say? It's um, cultivated in times of testing or trial or probation, which is like basically what the Ninevites were going to receive and judgment. And I look at this and I think there is a, a side lesson for us within this is that we need to understand sometimes that if we need to establish a, a better habitual life, that 40-day period of transformation can be very valuable in our lives. This is the season of Lent. And the season of Lent is supposed to parallel Jesus' 40. And this is what's interesting is that we have previously as a church emphasized Lent. We haven't this year because we're against it. And actually we're Protestants 
So, you know, there's a, this queasy thing about what we do with Lent. And some of you are just like, screw it. I like fish on Fridays, so that's awesome about it. The, the point of Lent wasn't supposed to be to go on social media and advertise that you're not going to eat chocolate. Or to say, I will now go off 40 days of social media because of said Lent. So you'll hear from me later. The point of it was supposed to be an individualistic transformation to where we stopped and said, what, you know, as Jesus paused, why can't we pause and see what's happening? So again, the, the reason that us Protestants are usually queasy with Lent is because there's a spiritual discipline to it. And we're always like, no, our, our, you know, our relationship with God isn't about disciplines. It's about relationship. But friend, that doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. And maybe in your life right now, there's some disciplines that you need to be developing When's the last time that you tested yourself in this way? When's the last time that you took a 40-day period to, to, to just see maybe that I'm going to try something different to see if God will impact that? If you're doing it at Lent right now, maybe you just need to hit the, or if you kind of said, I am doing it at Lent, but you need to reset, maybe do that. Maybe just to have an opportunity to try to say, what is that period of challenge that I could have in my life that God could speak with me? Within the life of the Ninevites, it was very simple. It was repent, repent, repent. For us, maybe it is repent, but maybe it's just something differently in our lives that we need to right-size with God. Either way, maybe use this as an opportunity to contemplate how we could react better. Okay, let's keep going through this, Andrew. Verses 5 through 9 of chapter 3. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Verse 5, I think, is a very, very important key to hear. Is that who did the Ninevites believe? Did they believe Jonah? That's not what the text says. They believed God. See, again, the difficult thing that many people have with religion, specifically Christianity, is how many of our, of our leaders are a money money. I'm really working on my language thing here, y'all, because I just want to, you should admire me for that. Or just don't admire me because I'm horrible like that. That's why people sometimes don't believe. It's because religious leaders are that oftentimes, and we can see their flawed ways, and therefore we think that the message is just disqualified because a leader is not living it out. But recognize that even though Jonah didn't live out the message, right? God says go. He doesn't go. He comes to this epiphany, but only after being digested by a fish. It's not like Jonah was in the right here. They didn't believe Jonah. The message was God. They believed God and his word. It's not about the individuals, it's about God. So when you allow individuals to be a stumbling block between you and your relationship, just stop and say, I'm going to trust that God is working even through people who are less able than they ought to be as messengers of God. Sometimes he works despite people. And how does this prove? Look at the revival that takes place. Now, this is some amazing things, and there's so much good 
good stuff right here. The first thing that I love about this is that the revival begins at the very top. So Jonah is preaching through the streets, right? This is a very low-level occurrence. But somehow what he is doing in the streets gets taken all the way to the king. Right? And and that's how when you see movements moving today, it it very often happens, right? It starts at grassroots and then it goes to the top. The thing about, you know, top-down type leadership is that usually you find out that the people that have the most are oftentimes the least willing to change their views and ways. One of the things that when we were in Geneva was just absolutely mind-boggling. It was the most expensive city I've ever been in. And I've been in almost every major American city. It makes New York look like child's play. And as you're walking down the street in the midst of all these like scooters and bicycles, you see expensive, very expensive European sports cars just parked along the street. The level of opulence is absolutely insane. I thought, what would it take to reach out to a city like Geneva, which, by the way, the irony of this is that it was one of the center of the Reformation. So it started off as a very Christian city. What would it take for some place like this to really be transformed by the gospel? And I would say it would have to be the moving of God. Because, friends, as much as we talk about how important it is to reach the down and out, the up and out are so much harder to reach. Because when you have everything, there's usually no humility involved within that. This is what I love about this story. Somehow this starts at grassroots. It makes it to the king. And the king takes that eight-word message from Jonah and says, y'all, we need to do this. Let's get on top of things. So the first thing he says is that we're going to fast. I don't know if some of you do fasting just as a health uh, um, discipline. Some people have done that because there's been, you know, there's really, it's it's fascinating because, you know, a, a decade ago, nobody was talking about fasting, not even within the church, because that was the thing where, you know, you talk about fasting in the church. I think I've only preached on it twice in like a decade or something like that. And people are like, hey, I'm up to you, Jesus, until I have to give up food because that sucks. People don't, uh, tend to not to fast, but now, seriously, I was reading a book yesterday about, you know, again, these uh, wonderful pagan people who are trying to bioengineer their their flow, and they're like, oh yeah, I totally have a discipline of fasting that goes anywhere from three to 14 days a few times of years. Like, pagans are fasting better than Christians are, but that's just the thing, I don't know. Why is fasting so important as a discipline? Because it's us going without. Friends, when you are hungry, the world looks incredibly different, doesn't it? And when you are hungry, you're like, nothing else matters but my hunger. And the point of fasting is you understand that this basic thing that God has provided you, food, the basic thing that he's provided you, a digestive system, when it's out of whack, it becomes this concentration that becomes overwhelming and in that you become more thankful for everything right i don't want to think about you fasters and i was going to say anybody fast here and then that we would all feel guilty for that so i could do that but think about it if you've ever fasted even if you've gone just a day without food you know how great it by the end of the day you're like you know like give me give me my chipotle burrito right like and it happens and you're like this is the best tasting burrito ever even though it's not french it's not that It's just that when you go without, you have this appreciation. 
And that's basically what, listen, we're all going to stop this because we're going to go without because we're going to right-size our relationship. The second thing he says is like, let's put on sackcloth, which is not something that we usually have a familiarity with because sackcloth was a burlap-type material that in the ancient times people would wear both, you know, again, Jews and non-Jews alike and Christians and non-alike. Everybody would wear it because you would clothe yourself in the worst material possible. And some of you are like, you know, I... I don't do sackcloth, but I have that one sweater that is just really horrible. And I want to throw it away, but I wear a shirt underneath it to protect me from all that happens. Just think about that, right? Like, you know what I'm going to do this week? I'm going to put on that worst itchy sweater and just walk around it. And every time it itches, I'm going to remember, why am I wearing this? Because I'm trying to right-size things with my relationship with God. The king says, let's do all this. This is my favorite part about it that kind of gets missed within there. Because he's like, hey, we're all going to repent. Get your animals together. And the animals are like, what the crap we didn't do anything we're animals we're not sinning why do we have to go through this experience but he's just like look get your animals together now think about that fasting is difficult in itself right fasting is horrible when you have a kitchen that is stocked full of supplies and you're like okay i gotta stay out of the kitchen how do you keep an animal fasting right you're going out to your goat you know when he's going to the grass you're like stop that you know, you're holding on to its jaw or you're doing this. And that like, so your whole time is that you're hungry or whatever. And then you're like keeping your animals from eating. And then, and then it also says, the animals need to wear the sackcloth too. You've seen the people in the park. Maybe you are these people. So I'm going to judge you. But if you put a sweater on a dog, I don't understand you. Right? Like I know, like why, dogs have fur coats. And if they can't stand it, then they're in the wrong climate. But in my neighborhood, everybody, like, they sweater up their dog. and walk. So if you're that person, I totally judged you. If you don't come to back to church for that, you know, talk to David. We'll, we'll have some spiritual counsel. But I'm just saying, it's the stupidest thing in the world. Okay, so imagine putting a sweater. You're putting a sweater on them, and they're like, I like the sweater. Can you imagine that you're putting on, I'm going to put up this vest of tax on this thing so that they're miserable. Can you imagine the people are like, we got to put the sackcloth back on the pig again, which, you know, it just is ridiculous. Why all of this? It's because they took the message seriously. They took the message seriously. And I think it's funny. But then you have to ask, do I take the message seriously? Again, this is where it comes back to. If we're really talking about our faith, have you ever felt that convicted where you're just like, I'm going to go all out for what Jesus needs me to do? For a lot of us, again, some of us have grown up in the faith. Some of us grew up in the faith, took a siesta, and you're coming back to it now. Some of you are even passionately searching that out. But here's the thing that's important that we have, we have to see is that there's a conviction to our faith. And that conviction is an understanding of who we aren't and who God is. And who we aren't is we're not always the best at it. The bright side to the message, God accepts us regardless. But sometimes we need to, instead of just talking about, hey, God forgives me, I'm good, I'm great. Sometimes we need to look internally and say, you know, gut check, how am I really doing? After Jesus spent 40 days on the earth, about 10 days later, an amazing incident happened in the life of the church. It's called the day of Pentecost. 
And the disciples that were left behind were in the temple and they had this thing where, you know, basically they were able to speak in different languages and, you know, even though they didn't know it, it was an amazing, miraculous opinion, uh, amazing, miraculous opportunity. And Peter, who was, you know, Peter, Jesus's lead disciple, gets up and starts preaching. He preaches this long message. And if you read back in Acts chapter 2, it's great because the end of the message was very similar to the message that Jonah said. Because Jonah's just like, look, guys, 40 days, you're snuffed out. You got to change. I love this because at the end of the message, Peter's preaching to Jews and he said, hey, by the way, Jesus was your Messiah. And here's the point. You killed him. Like, that's pretty high conviction. You know, it's just like, hey, by the way, all this great stuff happened and you killed him. And I love in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, this movement of conviction that happened with the people. When the people heard the message, they were cut to the heart. I love that as a metaphor. Cut to the heart. Because over 2,000 years, that metaphor still rings true, right? When is the last time you were cut to the heart? Maybe it was a time of intense sadness, of love lost. Maybe it was that in somebody that you loved that passed away. There's a level of conviction there that many of us don't often experience. Friends, when's the last time that you were cut to the heart? And that's what happened in Nineveh. They were cut to the heart, and when they did, they too asked, what's next? What do we do? What do we do? And the king said, this is what we did. And the people all over the kingdom, well, let's see this. Uh, Andrew, read that last verse there. Verse 10, please. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is key because it shows the nature of our God. Again, the great thing of our faith is who our God is. And that gets co-opted when we see small vignettes, right? One of the reasons that we as a church are committed to talking about the Bible and the wholeness of the Bible is because there's some weird stories in there, right? Like there's the weird story about the prophet who got eaten by a lion just because he didn't do what happened. Or the prophet who ended up in the belly of fish because he didn't do what God said to do. One time, at times we see these small vignettes and we're like, you know, God's a jerk. And we don't like him in the vignettes, but what we need to understand is the fullness of who God is at times. When he is a jerk, he has to be that because of us. Because he is all grace, but he is also all justice. And friends, we like justice when it benefits us. But if we don't like it when it doesn't benefit us, it's going to all become skewed. Again, you want the cop to let you go when you've been going too fast, right? You do not want the cop to let somebody go when they've killed somebody. Justice and grace are all part of who God is. And we gra- when we grab his vignettes of justice here, we're like, who is God to talk to these people and saying, you need to change your evil ways? You know that? What's the audacity? The audacity is what he does on the back end too, Right? The God of justice is the God who forgives. It's a phrase that is often used and often co-opted, but I don't think it loses any of its power from Second Chronicles chapter 7, where God says to his own people, if my people 
who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. And the way that this has been co-opted is some people is just like, this is America's problem, and we just need to elect all Jesus people to run the country and everything will be fine. That's not what this is talking about. See, our focus is always on all of the people instead of the people over whom we have ultimate control. The one looking back at us in the mirror. This is what God does. When we come to him and just say, God, I can't do it myself. Just, just forgive me and make me whole. He responds. Our God responds. And that's who God is. When called to move, he will move. So it comes down to how we react. So as the people in Acts chapter 2 said, okay, so now what? What do we do? I have this possible reality that I've been contemplating over the last couple weeks as I knew I was going to be able to preach about this today. I think what we are called to do as we read Jonah chapter 3 is for us to carve out some time and this week might be bad, but we've, you know, there, if you get Good Friday off, we've got a good three-day weekend coming up where we as the church go down to Fountain Square. We can make billboards, or not billboards, but signs, right? But they've got to be good. They can't be a little, you know, crazy reactive, like no red print like Westboro Baptist Church, but we'll find a font that's accessible in it, within that whole realm. And we are going to put the same eight-word message on our signs on Fountain Squares. You have 40 days and God's going to get you, right? So we'll have sign committees. Somebody can we'll have sign-ups in the back. It'll be great. And we'll be down on Fountain Square for three days, right? And then I imagine what will happen after we stand there with our signs. And maybe we'll organize some daily walks so we can go up to OTR. We could even maybe, you know, like stop at Senate on the way or something like that. We'll even stretch into northern Kentucky because we know they need to repent to. Southeast Indiana, we just can't touch. So that's on them. We will do our job for three days. And then I know what's going to happen. Mayor Cranley will tweet or publish an email or however this needs to work and say, hey, everybody, I've heard the message of Echo Church and they are right. They are correct. So we will now impose this time of sackcloth. If we get our act together and do it well, maybe the Reds will open tomorrow wearing new uniforms, like sackcloth uniforms with a Reds insignia stitched in on them. I don't know how the stitching will work. I imagine sliding into second base will be of great discomfort. I can't wait to go to the streets of Hyde Park to see animals muzzled to keep them from eating in their fast. And that in the new boutiques, the fashionable sweaters have now been replaced by wonderful sackcloth. Sounds ridiculous, of course. But it sounds even more ridiculous to think that even if that could happen in Cincinnati, a, a, a population of people of similar size would actually take the message of one dude doing this and say, he's right, we need to change. I mean, it's unbelievable. And actually, I would offer you that that is the unexpected turn that Jonah chapter 3 presents to us. See, when we talk about the book of Jonah, and I've read on this because I try to be a good theologian, 
But most of the uh, dialogue happens to how a man could live in the belly of a fish for three days and not be completely digested or dead. Like, what's really great is that back about 150 years ago, people would create fake scientific proof that, oh, this sailor fell overboard and was eaten by a fish and he was able to survive. And they cut open the fish and he was there and he was fine. And therefore, the story of Jonah could be true. And we get all caught up in within that miracle. is like, it is scientifically impossible that a man could be in the belly of a fish for three days and still survive and then go on his journey. And we focus so much on that miracle that what we escape is this fact, the unexpected turn, that the miracle that takes place in Jonah chapter 3 in seeing a whole city come back to God is much greater than the miracle that takes place in Jonah chapter 2 where a man is in the belly of a fish for three days. I'm telling you, theologically, or even maybe even as a pragmatist, that makes much less sense to me than the miracle of a man being in a fish. Because if I can believe in a God who created all things and stuff like that, I'm going to figure out that he's, you know, taking care of the incubation period within the belly of a fish. But to figure out how you can get an entire city to do anything in unison, I find that miraculous. I think that's the key for us to understand. And especially in light of what Jesus said when he told a story about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. Shepherds take care of sheep and we deal with, you know, quantifiable data, you know, like a hundred, like hundred, a perfect round number. If you take a hundred minus one, it's 99. It's not really that bad, is it? But in the story that Jesus told, the shepherd was just like, I'm missing one. So the shepherd just says, you sheep be sheep over here. I'm going to go find that one sheep. I'm going to go over the hills and through the valleys and explore all the caves and, the, and just any crack to go to find this one sheep. And the culmination of this little story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15 is this verse. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the reason why the shepherd pursues the sheep is because the message that we need to get. God cares about each one. And if you haven't figured out my story about three days in Fountain Square, we're all in jest. However, the thing that is very serious is what does this mean for you and I? Which is this, is God cares about the one. God cares. So the question I think we need to ask is, do you care about even one? Who's God putting in your life that just really needs something? Again, this doesn't mean an overt, aggressive evangelism to where we have to utter an eight-word sentence to shake them up. How can you be Jesus to somebody who desperately needs his grace? Do me a favor. This week is your roundabout. Will you think about that? Will you wrestle with that? And as I pray here, as we conclude, start to maybe, maybe it just is going to come. There's this one person that needs Jesus. You know what? Spend the next 40 days just praying for them. Give 40 days. And even if then there's no transformational event in that person's life, like they're not blinded from a light from the sun, you know, and you don't baptize them or anything like that, I think what you'll see is a place of discipline in our hearts where we look externally and see what God is doing. 
Friends, we all need repentance. It's what Jesus freely offers. Let's be faithful messengers of that. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the story of Jonah. I thank you for Jonah chapter 3. Again, we are enamored with the fish tale, but Father, I would hope that as we leave today, you will put within us this burden for the city of Nineveh as if it is our community. Because Father, that's what we want to be. We don't want to be a church that condemns, but we want to be a church that directs people to you because we recognize that you have changed us. And other people need that as well. So give us some guidance over the next 40 days or whatever period of time you put it on our hearts. Help us to identify one that is lost. Help us to pray. And in the midst of all this, God, help us not to become haughty and think that we are above repentance. Because again, all of us in this room, we need your grace. Help us to repent before you. Thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ who saves us. In his name, amen.